Oh, I hope you've had a good afternoon. Um, I got a report before Ernest got home uh, that it was a great job this morning, and uh, Poplar Springs treated him real well. And uh, I'm happy to announce tonight, um, this is not a perfect number, but it is a very close number uh, over the last two weeks, um, counting today. Uh, it's a little over $11,000 for your church. Amen. Praise the Lord. I thought he was coming to pray with me or take me uh, or take me out. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. Uh, okay, by way of announcements, if any of you can be here in the morning around 10 o'clock, I would appreciate help. Uh, we've got approximately 300 to 350 metal chairs to pick up. We got mattresses, we got furniture, we got a rototiller, we got bicycles. We've got boxes of clothes and shoes and recliners. And so uh, any of you that can come help and uh, follow us around over the county tomorrow, um, I'll be happy to buy your lunch if you show up. I can't give rain checks on this, okay? Uh, but we'll treat you good. We'll do something. Uh, but the main thing is to get all this stuff loaded and uh, for Mac and me to head to Atlanta on Tuesday morning. Uh, Ernest will be leaving our house in the morning. I think he said 5.30. 5.30. He's got to pick up a truck in Atlanta, Georgia at 7 o'clock. So the little car will be wound tight. All right. Anybody got any announcements? Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for time to be back in your house together with your peop people. And Lord, I thank you for the rounds that you have allowed Ernest to make today. We thank you that he's here with us tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the good offering for people who love missions. And God, I pray that you'd bless those that have given and those that are praying and those that are that care about what's going on in Cameroon. Lord, I pray that you bless every soul in this room tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us and we'll sing nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can force in atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow, no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you, may be seated. Brother Dave Miller's coming to sing our special. And at least a thousand times I've rejoiced for you But the reason why I'm broken The reason why I cry Is how long must I wait to be with you I close my eyes And I see your face If home's where my heart is and I'm out of place Lord won't you give me strength To make it through somehow I've never been more homesick Than now Help me Lord Cause I don't understand your ways The reason why I wonder if I'll ever know But even if you showed me The hurt would be the same Cause I'm still here So far away from home I close my eyes And I see 
your face If home's where my heart is Then I'm out of place Lord, won't you give me strength To make it through somehow I've never been more homesick Than now In Christ there are no goodbyes In Christ there is no end So I'll hold on to Jesus With all that I have To see you again To see you again I close my eyes And I see your face If home's where my heart is Then I'm out of Lord, won't you give me strength to make it through somehow? Won't you give me strength to make it through somehow? Won't you give me strength to make it through somehow? I've never been more any time. I want to give Ernest as much time as he needs, and I ask you to make him welcome and uh, give him your attention, brother. Good evening. I'm sure if you look at me and him, you, you can see the resemblance. <laughs> I'm beginning to walk like him. <laughs> I'm limping a little bit. But God has a great sense of humor, and... Uh, each time I call, I'll say, this is the black sheep of the family. <laughs> and uh, in every sense of the way, I am, because I'm not here. But um, I think it's Corey Tenboom who once said, every experience God gives us and every person he puts in our path is the perfect preparation for the future only he can see. Every experience God gives and every person. And 25 years ago, I met Pastor Kenny... And my life and his life has never been the same. It has been an adventure. Uh, in those early days, I did not, we just started Bright for Life, and I didn't know anywhere. I, sometimes I would travel to go speak to one person, Oregon. I would drive from one end of the country to another and just trusted the Lord. And uh, one morning I was in Atlanta. I was flying, supposed to fly out in the evening, to, um, I think in the late afternoons, to, I think, San Antonio, Houston. And uh, usually I wake up in the morning around 4 to pray. And when I was very tired, I prayed and I wanted to go back to bed. And something said, just go to the airport. And 25 years ago, things were a little bit different. Uh, they would let you board if there was, you know, even if you booked later, they would let you board if there was uh, something. So I went and I boarded 
you know, there was enough uh, space. And I sat, and a few minutes later, I saw a bunch of, I don't know if to call them rednecks or <laughs> guys entered the plane. They were just talking and shouting, and they were just happy. I thought, this is too early for this. You know, I thought there were a bunch of drunks. And, uh, and then he came and sat by me. And I was like, oh boy, what in the world is this? I looked at him and he wanted to talk. I was not in a talking mode. I was tired. And so they served breakfast. Uh, in those days, they would bring small breakfast. They used to serve breakfast, for those of you may, may not know. And they served and I was really hungry. You know, I ate mine. He looked at me. He said, my wife had something, a meal for me this morning before I left. Would you like to have mine? I'm not hungry. I said, sure. He gave me his. I ate it. And he looked at me. He said, he said boy, that boy must be hungry. And uh, then we began the conversation. And uh, I asked what I did. And I told him I'm a missionary. And and he said he was a pastor, and I said, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know. And before he left, he gave me his card and gave me money. He said, uh, when I was leaving this morning, a lady in my church pulled me aside and gave me some money and said, as you're going, I think you're going to Guatemala or Honduras. He said, as you go, I'm not sure, but you will meet somebody, you will know. Uh, just give him this. And he said... When he saw me, he knew God was speaking for him to give me that. And he gave me $20. And in those days, starting afresh, I'd given up everything, sold every, gave everything away to do what I'm doing. $20 was like uh, $2,000. Uh, that was a big amount. I was so grateful. I took, he gave me his card, and that was it. And I decided a few weeks later to just look on the map where Seneca could be, and I, it was difficult to find it in the map, but I finally found the place, and it was a small town, and I said, can any good thing come out of uh, this place? <laughs> and, uh, and I think maybe a year later or so, a long time later, I was in the Atlanta area, and I said, let me just check this place out. I didn't want to call them. I said, I'm sure. So I went. I just made sure I came after the service I started because I did not want to be noticed. And I sat behind, and as soon as I walked in, Pastor Kenny called me to the front. <laughs> you know. And I was fasting then. I went over, after that, went over to their house, and there was a meal, so I decided to break my fast. In those days, I fasted, <laughs> not because I wanted to, but it was much easier to fast because uh, money was limited and just starving was a different thing, but if you declared three days of fast or four days or ten days, you concentrate better. And I went over and um, I was trying to stay away from, uh, is it bread or? Uh, yes. And boy, I ate the first one, I ate the second one, I ate the third one, and I was hooked. And that's how our relationship began. Uh, I think a year or two later, Pastor Kenny came to Cameroon. He has been there a few more times, and uh, and I think the last time was last year with uh, uh, man. All white folks look alike. <laughs> Sandra, man, I'm trying to, yes, and with a team, and uh, he will tell you 25 years later, things have changed. 
you know, from when he came. Uh, we are just so thankful, and it's all because of relationships like this. You make it possible for us to do what we do, and we are just so grateful, really grateful. Uh, about two months ago, I had the COVID, and I thought that was it, because I'm diabetic, and uh, I just to, just thought, you know, I was gone. Uh, for, I struggled with it for about three, four weeks, uh, finally got out and came, I flew here thinking I'll take the vaccine and then return home. And, um, but I was told you can't take the vaccine until 90 days or so after. So I'm, I'm headed home next week. But before I came, one of the churches were planted about uh, eight years ago in a struggling side of the, uh, the city. Uh, just got, I was awakened by a video, was a video that the church had just burnt, and so I went over. And one of the first things I told them, I didn't know, this is a church that generates uh, anywhere between 200 to maybe maximum $600 a month. Uh, that is often not enough to cover their bills. The pastor's house is rented for $200, about $200, I think about 180 the land that we built the church is being rented. We rent it for $200 a month, and then the pastor's salary. It's usually not enough, so it's been struggling for a few years. Uh, a fire began somewhere in that neighborhood, and because the house was built with just uh, uh, wood, you know, just not really what uh, everything in that whole area burned down. And it's not a country where there's insurance, and even when you have insurance, there's no guarantee and they called me, they'd lost everything. Businesses, about five, about 15 taxes were burnt completely. The next business was a carpentry workshop, burnt completely. The guys came there, a lot of people just fainted because that was all. They'd lost everything. The pastor's wife, fortunately the pastor had traveled. The pastor's wife just fainted and uh, just was miserable. So, I, and it was tough to give an encouragement when People are. So that morning I just went, I shared from uh, Isaiah 53, uh, uh, 43, I've called you by name when you go through the waters. And then I also shared Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, all things work together for good. But I began by telling them that the gospel is full of paradoxes. Christian, you know, the gospel, it's, God sometimes doesn't make sense. But I said, that's not our place to understand. We will never be able to understand things. Uh, but that morning, I don't know how I got, I got into it, and I said, w the church will build a much better church. It will be a, a stronger congregation. I just, by faith, I just said that. And I came to the state. I was reluctant to call. There's so many needs, so many things going on. And I just said, I don't think I want to share this. And I struggled and struggled. Who do I share this with? Should I share it on Facebook? And I said, no, I'm not going to share this on Facebook. There's just so much need around. But I think two or three weeks ago, I just, for some strange reason, I just decided to send the videos to uh, Mama Lynn, and uh, she shared it. And, and as God, I called another pastor friend of mine who has a smaller congregation in Jacksonville, and uh, he told me they was, they'll be praying, but that they were raising money for another church in a similar situation in Syria. So... Right now, it's not uh, possible. I wasn't sure who else to call, but I just sent the videos to her, and I'm so glad that God touched her to share that with others. And
This week, I think, they'll be coming to Atlanta with over 300 cheers for the church and so many other things. And uh, uh, that's not what they've never really had. So it's going to be a much better church. But I'm saying this to say God orders our steps. Our steps are ordered by the Lord. And sometimes, like I said, I quoted Corey Tenboom who said, every experience he gives us and every person he puts in our path is a perfect preparation for the future. Only he can see. More than 30 years ago, I came into this country, and I've shared that here, but I just want to share a little bit of what God has done in my life and my testimony as a whole. Um, every morning, I wake, when I wake up every morning, almost every morning, I wake up with a hymn in my heart. This morning, for some strange reason, the song I sang this morning was, I need thee every hour. I need it every hour. And almost every morning I wake up. I still enjoy those old hymns of the church. I, I'm not against contemporary songs. I enjoy them equally. But there's so much depth and so much theology in the hymns of the church. And so much inspiration behind them. And one of my favorite is, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's leading whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy I hear his voice of cheer, and just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, he talks with me, along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. He lives, in spite of what we see, he lives, he lives, he lives. And not only do I enjoy singing hymns, I also enjoy reading inspiration, the story behind those hymns. This particular hymn was written by a man by the name of Alfred Aker. He was a traveling evangelist. He was speaking at an open uh, tent meeting one evening, and, uh, and after he had finished his message, he made an altar call, and when he was about to walk out, he was pulled aside by a young man. And the young man asked him this question. He said, why should I serve a dead Jew? And Alfred uh, was taken aback. He did not know what or how to respond. And all that came to his mind was, he lives, he lives. He looked at the young man and said, son, I tell you, he lives, he lives, he lives. And he went home that evening with the question, why should I serve? You know, sometimes those questions will pose doubt. Why should I serve a dead Jew? And the response, his response came back, he lives, he lives, he lives. And he was inspired to write that great hymn of the church. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how. I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And I hope he lives in our heart too. And he came into my heart more than 40 years ago, probably almost 45 years now as a 13-year-old. He radically changed me. Another hymn I enjoy is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, written by a man by the name of John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. He was a drunk. He was a terrible sinner. Most people thought he was completely lost. He was beyond. But somewhere along the line, because of the prayer of his mother or grandmother, he came to faith and was radically changed. It's said of John Newton that each time he walked the streets of London and would see another drunk, he will beat his chest and say, by grace, there go I. 
There go I. There go I. He was a man who truly understood the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And before he died, he also penned these words down. He said, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I hoped to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. But by the grace of God, I'm what I am. And that probably sums my testimony and your testimony. But that sums my testimony. Not what I want to be. Not what I ought to be. Not what I hoped to be. But still not what I once used to be. Although I came to faith at the age of 13, still not what I once used to be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Um, I think it's Paul writing to his son Titus in the Lord. In Titus chapter 3, verse 11 through 15, he says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly and righteously in this world, looking for and hastening for the coming of the Lord. And it's that same grace that appeared to me. Uh, in our part of the world, people who do not believe in God are oddities. In our part of the world, we grow up knowing there's a big God, but we don't know him. Uh, in Africa and around the world, in third world nations. Uh, but the amazing thing is we even have a name for him, you know. In the Yoruba language, they call him Olodumare. Although we worship all kinds of things, but we have a name for him, Olodumare. Literally translated is the God of all gods. In my language, we call him Sandyup. Literally translated is Mr. God. That's, uh, he's above all the other gods. It's amazing when you speak different languages like I do. I spoke about ten languages. When It's difficult to literally translate things. So when you literally translate them, I've told you, um, in Yoruba language, when you say I'm very happy, you say Inumidu Pupo. Literally translated is my intestines are very sweet. So if I, <laughs> so if you see me this evening and you're happy, just tell me Inumidu Pupo. And that's why you need uh, what you call not just translators but interpreters who can contextualize it. And so for those of us who English or is our second or third language, sometimes. We say things, you'll be, oh, uh, what do you mean? What do you mean? Uh, but I came to Christ, and uh, I knew there was a big God, but I did not know him. And as early as I can remember, in our part of the world, there was so much witchcraft, so much syncretism with, uh, in, within the Catholic Church, which was the only church then. Uh, and so I memorized, I started going to the Catholic Church as early as I can remember, probably at the age of about 10 and I'll go for confession, go for all of those things. I was baptized and confirmed. I memorized their Catholic prayer book from front to back. But there was no peace. I was living in fear. I thought my goods would not be more than my bads. And the Catholic Church told us if your goods were, you may end up in limbo. Or is it purgatory or all of these things? And as a young man, I was living in fear. Then I came across a small Bible. My cousin had gone to school, I think 1976 or so. And he came back home with a small Bible. I think it was a Gideon Bible. We didn't have a lot of reading materials. And I enjoyed reading, but we didn't have much. So I stole his Bible. And I'm not advocating stealing, but if you must steal, steal a Bible. And I began reading that Bible in the evening. That was the most precious thing I had. I'd never, in the Catholic Church, we were discouraged. In the 70s, you were not supposed to read the, uh, hold the Bible, just the priest. And so for the first time I came across a small Bible 
in our Catholic tradition, I will kneel down at night and say, God, I want to know you. I began reading Psalms and Proverbs, began memorizing Scripture, and I was, I'll pray. And then in 1977, I think, while in boarding school, somebody came and showed a Christian movie. And at the end of the movie, he presented the gospel from John chapter 1. And when he came to verse 11, he said, He came unto his own, and his own did not know him. But as many as received him, he gave power to become sons of God. That one verse will revolutionize my life completely. I knew this was the power I needed. I invited Jesus Christ into my life. I was the first believer from my tribe. My life was radically changed. And in those days, my parents, everybody thought I'd joined a cult. They were just worried for me. And uh, uh, But I began following Jesus. Little I learned, little did I know that first yes will be a series of yeses. I've tried saying no a few times, and it's not been very good. Uh, at the age of 15, I responded to the call. In the 70s, were very few Christians, very few. I went to a youth camp organized by the Evangelical Church of West Africa, and they were talking about their needs, and they made an altar call for those who feel called. I tried sitting, but I could not, and I responded, and I said, here am I. God, use me whatever way you want to use me. When I graduated from high school at the age of 17, I just started traveling and helping to plant churches. In those days, we were not paid. You know, we, you just did what you could, and that was just it. And at the age of about 20, I felt God was calling me to go back to school. Uh, and I just felt God wanted me to come to America. And everybody looked at me. There's no way. You don't have a bank account. How are you going to get a visa? And so I prayed and prayed, and I was visiting a big city, and I came across a small magazine, a Christian magazine, just said Last Days magazine. And somebody gave it to me, and when I began reading it, I saw a school advertised ICT, Intensive Christian Training. And I just knew God was calling me to go there. I applied. The application fee was $15. I didn't have it. So I wrote, I just wrote, I don't have. And I sent it in. A few weeks later, they wrote back and said, you've been admitted. And then they told me the tuition was X number of dollars. <laughs> I couldn't pay uh, $15. There was no way. So I wrote back and I said, never touch that kind of money in my life. So a few weeks later, they wrote back and said, somebody had just given full scholarship. And how will I get here? I had full scholarship. There was nothing. So I started a small business. I will buy things from this city, which were cheap. Go sell it. In the other, I was going back and forth. But, and then before I knew it, I lost everything. I was trying to depend on my own strength. And then I approached my uncle who has raised me. My uncle sold everything. Gave me his motorcycle, empty his bank account, was able to buy me a one-way ticket to New York. I didn't know the geography. I was admitted at a school in Lindale, Texas, just outside Tyler. And we did not know there was a, another big city called Dallas. We knew when you talked of America, you talked of Washington, D.C., New York. So I went to the travel agent. Where are you going to? I said, New York. So he got me a ticket for New York. And a friend of mine gave me $20. And I just figured when I get to New York, I'm just going to catch a cab with this $20, and I'll just go to Lindale. So... On my way, we had a layover in England. I ate uh, most of the money I spent it on food. And then I arrived in New York with very little, a few dollars. 
I slept at the airport for two days. I did. I found out that Linda was in another state and quite away, and there was no taxi that would take me there. So, and that's where I had, I've shared, that's where I had my first cultural shocks in this country. I slept at the airport for two days, and I needed to use the restroom really bad at one point. You know, those days they had little chairs. I stayed, and I asked somebody, in my country, if you want to use the restroom, so I want to ease myself, or I want to relieve myself. So I walked up to a lady, I said, I would like to relieve myself. She said, yeah, right. She said a few words, and she left. So I went up to another one. I said, I would like to ease myself. And I, I was telling people, and people looked at me funny. Eventually, I think a gentleman said, you want to use the restroom? I said, no, I'm not trying to rest. I thought maybe the guy saw I was tired and he, I needed rest. I said, no, I'm not trying to rest. I want to, use, I want to ease myself. He said, no, there. He pointed. I saw a small sign of a man and a woman. And I said, this must be a den of iniquity. I've heard about this great country. I said, no way. I was trying to explain I was a Christian. I saw people going through one door and coming out. So I kept going through the whole terminal. And a little country boy, I lost my bag. I didn't know where. I'd, all my, everything I had, all my clothes and everything, I did not know where it was. So I lost that. So I just knew that was it. And so eventually I just said, you know, I'll just go in there and tell those women I'm a Christian and all I want to do is ease, uh, ease myself. So I walked through the door and I saw men going one way and women. And decision time, you know, who I followed. Common sense told me to follow the men, and I'm glad I did. <laughs> that was my first uh, experience, cultural shock in America. And uh, providentially, God provided I began hearing my name on the intercom. I did not know what an intercom was. God had always spoken to me through that inner voice. But this time I was hearing him call me. You know, I didn't know. And I, I kept looking. You know, I know for those of you who have grown with technology, it makes sense. But for a child like mine, when I first heard about television, I thought somebody was lying. So you could be in your house and you're watching people playing football. I said, man, these guys lie a lot. How in the world could you, you know? And here I was in New York, and I kept hearing my name. They were not pronouncing it well, but it was my name I heard. They pronounced the earnest, but the other one they could not, and I kept hearing. And so I remembered a little Samuel, you know, and I said, God, speak for thy servant, hear it. But he just kept repeating my name. And after a while, I turned to a guy. I said, look, I explained to him who I was, and I said, I keep hearing my name, and I don't know where it's coming from, I'm looking. And he said, oh, we listen. He said, they're calling you to the ticket counter. I said, who could be calling me? He said, an agent. So I went to the ticket counter. A ticket was there waiting for me to go to Dallas. They just gave me a ticket. To date, we don't know who paid for it. I don't know anybody. Yeah, I didn't know anybody in the U.S. So I flew to Dallas, got to Dallas. I had my admission letter, showed it to somebody in those days, they had pay phones all over the airport. Somebody told me you could call, make a collect call. I made a collect call, and somebody picked up the phone on the other end. And I said, collect call from Ernest for Lindsay. He said, hold on, hang on, hang on. And I'm thinking, hang? <laughs> hang? You know, I, I saw the rope. I said, man, these guys are rude, you know. And then a few seconds later, somebody came to the phone. You see, sometimes all the terminologies you use here, you don't know, it doesn't make sense for some of us. And uh, 
A few seconds later, the director of the school, Lindsay Reed, he's actually the brother of Peyton Reed, the movie actor, came on the phone, and he was very excited. And he said, I'll be there in two and a half hours, and he told me where to wait for him. I was obviously very hungry, and so when he came, I think he saw the way I looked. He took me to a small place, uh, to a small stand. He said, Ernest, will you like some hot dogs? And I'm thinking, we eat all kinds of things in my tribe, but our tribe doesn't eat dogs. It's the other tribe that eats dogs. So I was thinking, how do I ride home about eating this? So I, I didn't want to be rude. So reluctantly, I said, yes. I think he saw my reluctance. He said, what about a chicken sandwich? I'd never eaten chicken sandwich. I didn't know what that was. But I knew what chicken was, so I said, yes. So they gave me something, and took me to school, and I started the rumor. I went, I was asking the next day, I said, do you guys eat dogs here? They said, no. I said, the director eats dogs. They said, no. I said, I'm telling you. He took me to a place where they ate dogs. They were, they were cooked, and they were really hot. And I said, he said it to me. He told me hot dogs, you know, that we should eat. And, uh, and they said, no. They tried explaining. He said, are you really sure? I said, yes. And it took me about a year to finally figure out what hot dogs were. And when I came, I was very skinny. And you look at me now, you know I've had a whole lot of dogs, uh, hot dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, usually as I travel, I stop at Sam's Club. And with $1.50, I could buy a hot dog and a big uh, a drink, you know. So that's how I live. When you're on a budget like us, you know, you know how to manage all the places. Uh, but that's... You know, so I finally figured what hot dogs were. And, uh, but God has been gracious. After my time at the school there, a door opened. One of the guys who had come there, uh, Kenny Drain, who was a musician, uh, invited me to go visit his town in Arkansas, Russellville. And I was trying to go to college. Everybody told me college was so expensive. And... I met with their elders, their leadership of the church. It was a small church that came out of the Jesus movement. It was called Fellowship Church uh, in Russellville. And told them I desired to go to college. And they said, you know what? We've been saving some money. We've never done mission. We've been saving. And the whole elders, leadership, unanimously felt they needed to give me what they've been saving to go to college. And that's how I went to Arkansas Tech University. Uh, at Arkansas Tech University, and they also had quite an experience. I'd never dated my whole life. A friend of mine took me, uh, Tim Carter, he's actually the dean, assistant dean now of the University uh, of Education, and he took me out one evening with a girl. He said, Ernest, let's go on a date. I said, what do you mean? In our culture, we do arrange marriages. I said, what do you mean? He said, we'll go out with two girls, I'll arrange. So I said, okay. You know. So went to a Wendy's. He paid for it, and uh, and at 10 o'clock, my girl said, Ernest, I got to go home. I said, why? We're having fun. He said, my father will have a cow. I said, wow. So if I get home late, my father will have a cow. I said, wow. I know they were rich, but I didn't know they were this rich. So I'm thinking, wow. I kept trying to invite myself. She won't invite me, you know. So I went back to my dorm that night, a little bit disillusioned. You know, I told my roommate, I said, you won't believe this girl's father was going to kill a cow. You know, when Pastor Kenny goes to my village, we'll kill maybe a small chicken or so to welcome him. But I thought this was an extension of our culture. The 
And I was telling her, you go home late, your father has a cow? She said, yes. I said, wow, man. <laughs> and she didn't invite me. But I uh, went to Arkansas Tech, and like most international students, after a while I finished college, uh, began working for Coca-Cola. I worked for Ford Motor Company in Michigan in uh, Yipsy. I lived in Yipsy. And in 1994, my uncle, who had given me his life savings, I got news that my uncle had died. And it really had a traumatic impact on me. Uh, I was devastated because this was my hero. Uh, I was thinking in our part of the world, children are like your social security. You live, you get older, and then your children take care of you. And I was looking forward to taking care of my uncle, and he died. It was very devastating. And I began asking questions. That was before Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. I was asking those questions. Why am I here? What is the purpose for my existence? Was I created for something? And God began speaking to me when I came here. He spoke to me that he had brought me here as a Joseph. I didn't understand what that meant. And as I studied the Bible, I realized at a critical time in the history of Israel, God had linked Joseph with Egypt to connect resources. And I knew God was calling me to be a bridge to connect resources. I quit my job at uh, then in, at Ford, gave away everything, and I knew I was returning home. Everybody asked, what are you taking to Africa with you? I said, I'm taking Jesus. You know, it was a radical change. And people thought I'd gone crazy. My sister, my cousins thought, you have so much opportunity to make a good living here, and you're quitting to do what? In 1994 and 95, I, I was led to start Bread for Life. I felt very strongly that God was calling me to be an organization that would combine evangelism with social action. Because from my studies, I realized the liberal arm of the church emphasized the social aspect of the gospel at the detriment of the spiritual. And those of us uh, conservatives or, will emphasize the spiritual while neglecting the social and I saw there was a need. The gospel itself is all holistic. And that's how I started. Uh, God providentially led me to, uh, to Kerrville, a small town called Kerrville. And a gentleman, James and Pasadena, opened their home to me and gave me a place to stay. They gave me the Aden. I was staying there, registered Bread for Life, and started. I did not know anybody. I would travel from one end of the country, sometimes to go speak to international. In those days, my, my audience was mostly internationals because I haven't been an international. I knew the need to reach out internationals because I knew God has always had two ways of reaching the world. He prepares his people and sends them to the lost. We call those missionaries. But oftentimes, God prepares the lost and sends them to his people. And I call that foreign mission in reverse. And I realized at that time that God has strategically positioned America to reach the world without even going to the world. The world sent the best, the cream of the crop, to study here. Over 500,000 people are studying here every year from different parts of the world. And so I'll go from one end of the country to another on campus to share and things. That was my audience because I didn't have openings in churches. I didn't know any church in those days. And uh, uh, that's how I met Pastor Kenny. I was sharing here. There was a group here in Atlanta that I had come to share and I was returning back to Kerrville and that morning. And that's how God began opening doors with other churches also. 
We have about 11 churches now that support us, but it's taken 26 years, and we're just so thankful. And right now I have about 70 people on staff with Bread for Life in Cameroon uh, who make a salary of anywhere from uh, $150 to, I think, the maximum we pay is about $500. The medical doctor, the, uh, I mean, the veterinary doctor who oversees the farm is uh, the highest earning person there, but about 70 of them. And God has been very faithful. But one of the things we're trying to do is build what I call sustainably. Uh, when I was sick recently with COVID, all my staff were afraid. They thought Ernest would die. <laughs> you know, what will happen to us? Everybody was worried. <laughs> they told me that later. They said, man, if you die, that means our jobs, everything is gone. And, and from You've known me for 25 years. And for the last 25 years, I've been talking about building in such a way that if Jesus tarries, there's continuity. Success without succession or continuity is no success. So we're trying to build in such a way that ministries in such a way that you're providing um, what I call services. You're creating jobs, but at the same time ministering while simultaneously generating revenue. So we have two sustainable ministries that we've started now, and I'll talk about both of them, the school as well as uh, the farm. Uh, we're also involved in church planting. The last 25 years, we've planted over 25 churches across the country. One of them is the church that burnt recently. But most of those churches, because there's so much unemployment, more than 60% unemployment in the country. So you have a church of 200 members. The tithes and offerings are often not enough to take care of anything. And, and I keep telling them, we've got to change this. We've got to be creative, innovative. God is the one who gives us the power, the ability to make wealth. And so uh, our focus the next few years is mostly on what I call sustainable development, things that are capable of doing ministry, but providing services, creating jobs. We've created about 70, uh, 70 jobs now. We have about 30 people, over 30 people now in the farm. We have 27 at the school, and then we have an administrative staff. And that doesn't even include people who are working part-time. And uh, so the farm basically, uh, we started that about uh, a few years ago, but it did not take off till just last year where God began providing. We bought initially about uh, 250 acres of virgin forest land among the Barker pygmies, who are nomads, you know, just all woods. I mean, some of the largest trees and all the rest. And so we're doing everything manually. Our goal is to build it in such a way that within the next two, three years, we can generate revenue and use it. First, it will be used as uh, a demonstration, a fully integrated, sustainable demonstration farm for training and research also, and then uh, what I call agro and ecotourism, then allied industries will start, and then a youth camp, so that during the holidays we could bring thousands of young people. This will be the first youth camp in the whole country. Bring them in and expose them to the beauty and credibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So far, we're making some progress. We've, uh, we've, we have about uh, 120,000 pineapples on the ground now. Uh, you can plant about 20,000 pineapples or 25 on an acre. Of land. So our goal this year is to plant at least 300,000 pineapples. In agriculture, profit margin is very small. And so to be able to make profit, you have to grow in mass. 
So that's our goal. And it usually takes about $1,000 to buy 20,000 pineapples. But right now we've planted enough that we don't have to buy again. We just need to, from our own pineapples, now we could uh, multiply. So that's what we're doing now. Only challenge right now is developing land, you know, so we could plant. We have pigs. We have about 52 now. They just called me yesterday. They said, <laughs> Brother Ernest, the food is finished. Our corn, our soya beans, everything. Last year, I, I realized this will happen. So we had about a 1,000 chickens. I told them to kill all our chickens and eat them because I knew we'll be at a place. And I've been telling them, I said, we've got to build sustainably so that within the land itself, everything goes around. You know, you're able to take from your corn. So we're trying to develop about 100 acres of land this year to plant corn, soya beans, and peanuts so we could feed our animals and also uh, extract from the soya beans oil and other things and just a wide range of things. Uh, I'll be glad to talk to you if you're interested in this. But that's one aspect. Uh, God has been very good to us. By the end of this year, we'll have about 300,000 pineapples. And by the end of next year, and with 300,000 pineapples at 20 cents a pineapple, we should be able to generate a little over $50,000 next year. And then by the end, the following year, 2023, we should be able to have at least 600,000 pineapples or 900,000. And so every year to increase because from our pineapples, with each pineapple you plant, once you harvest it, you have about three other suckers that grow from there. And we're also teaching the villagers around us. So basically an industry will start in that area. And the next thing is processing this into juice and all the rest, nutrition. Uh, we're planting corn this time. We've been able to develop about five, uh, about 10 acres of land recently to plant corn so that in about three months' time, once the corn we harvest, we'll be able to start bringing in chickens, you know, so we could feed them, uh, mostly layers, so their eggs and other things. So, but that's where we are with that. Uh, but I was married late. I was 40 when I got married, so I've got young kids. We found out six years ago that our oldest child has what they call autism. We brought him here, and they told us we'll need ABA therapy, we'll need speech therapy, we'll need uh, occupational therapy. And we went back to our country, and we found out there were only two speech therapies in the whole country. And nobody knew anything about autism. And we have over 130,000 autistic kids usually when that happened, they just leave them on the streets. Nothing is being done. And no school was doing anything. There was only one school that was attempting to do something. But their fees were about $1,000 a month. So only the super rich in a country where the average salary is $200 a month, tuition. So my wife, being a typical mother, enrolled our son there. But I just told her this is not sustainable, and I didn't feel God was calling us to do that. But... I just didn't want to fight it, so she enrolled, but she took loans, and within a few months, she realized it wasn't sustainable, So, and our son was just dismissed, so I said, let's paint a room in our house and work with him ourselves and maybe hire people, and we started that. I traveled to the state. By the time I, I got here, they told me we have about 10 other families that have found out about us, and they are bringing their kids, so uh, before we knew it, a school was started. We have... 95, 92 students now and 27 staff at the school. Uh, but our problem right now is sustainability. We're in the hole every year with over $40,000 in the red. And so to make it sustainable, we figured with 250 students, the school can become sustainable. 
paying $500 a year because it's a day school. So, but our problem right now is accommodation. Uh, two buildings we have, Lynn, you were there. It's already too tight. The buildings were built as houses to live in, so rooms are too small. So you cannot have 11 children in a small bedroom. It's just too much. So we're trusting the Lord to, uh, for land. We found a couple of lands that we're trying to negotiate. We cannot afford land in Douala. It's expensive. They're telling you $200,000. A half a million. Uh, the city is saturated, and uh, uh, over uh, four million people in a small uh, town is just. But we could go about two hours away and we'll get the same piece of land for three thousand dollars. But if we do that, nobody will come there because there's no transportation. So we have to be in Douala. So be praying for us. Uh, when I get back to Texas on Tuesday or Wednesday, I will start looking for foundations. And writing grants. So if you know a grant writer here, you could refer us to uh, who could help in this area. Please let us know. We're looking for foundations that may be interested. Arkansas Tech, I was there last week. My university has signed an MOU with me to work with us. They sent somebody two years ago. They written to uh, a grant for us for a million dollars through the Spencer Foundation, but uh, they did not succeed. So they will continue to help us write grants. But if you know others who can help us, this a little bit of what we are doing. That's where we are. But God has been gracious to me. I look back, people ask me, why do you do what you do? Because God has been so gracious to me. You know, God has been so great. The chances of me being where I am, knowing the people I know, the connection, there's no way. I, I live a life of gratitude. Every day I wake up, I say, thank you. Thank you. My son asked me once, he said, Dad, are we well off? <laughs> I think that was two years ago. I said, well, son, I won't say, I, will, I won't use that word. I will rather say we're blessed. We're blessed. And he looked at me. I'm sure he has been hearing something somewhere. He says, don't you think if you were not giving away everything, that would be well off? I said, well, son, God has blessed us so much. I said, you and I just took you to a place. We ate pizza, the two of us. Although we don't do it every day, we ate pizza, the two of us, for $20. Do you know that is somebody's salary for more than a week in Cameroon? So aren't we blessed with that? So it was a good opportunity to talk to him about significance. you know. And so we started. And so last year, because of that, I just realized he was at a place where he was questioning. We put him in a Christian school and we took a major step of faith, and God has been so faithful this year that was paid for this year. But speaking of significance, and I'll end with that this evening. Uh, in our part of the world, they say Americans have watches and they don't have time. Africans don't have watches and they have all the time. So uh, when, you know, our services are usually elastic. You guys have been there. They go on for three hours. So one-hour services, like what? So when I tell them, church is here, one hour, one hour, 15 minutes, say, what? What do they do? <laughs> one hour, I said, well. So uh, uh, I was given a verse when I was in grad school. It says, blessed are those who bring short messages, for they shall be invited back. So, <laughs> so I, I've never forgotten that. I, I definitely want to come back. Uh, I don't want to, but. And speaking of significance, I began talking to my son about significance, you know. And speaking of significance, one of the most powerful verses that deals with significance is in Acts chapter 13, verse 36. And it says, And after David had fulfilled 
the purposes of God for his generation, he died and was buried. The purposes of God. You know, this morning I shared at the church and I told them, we're not mere biological happenstance. God has placed us here for a reason, for a season and for a lesson. We're not mere biological happenstance. We're here for a reason. And I know that. I live my life on a daily basis because I know God has blessed me. I may not have material things, but that's irrelevant. That's what I tell my kids. Look at how much we've been blessed. You know, look at how much God has blessed us. And that's what I remind my children every day. I am blessed by virtue of people like him. I can travel this country. In those early days, I used to travel and sleep in rest areas. But now I, I have my own apartment. <laughs> the African room downstairs, the whole basement. I, I own that. So I can come here. And, isn't that blessed? I am blessed. And I, in Texas, the same way. Everywhere I go, God has blessed me. And I'm able to do what I do because of that. Uh, and significance. Scripture says, and after David had fulfilled the purposes of God for his life, he died. At the end of each of our lives, it will be said we died. How will we be remembered? How will history remember us? Will they just remember us for what, when we leave or what we left behind? What legacy? I believe there are three stages in each of our lives. It's what I call, you know, survival. When you're trying to get your head above the water, the next step is success. When God has blessed you and you could take care of yourself, but oftentimes, most of us remain either in survival or we remain in success. We're content. But the last and final stage is what I call significance. The impact, what you do for others. The impact you make in the lives of others. And God has called us to make an impact in our world. God has called us to make a difference. We're not mere biological happenstance. He has called us to make a difference in our world. And we may not all be N.S.A. Habe or uh, Kenny Owen, but we all have a role to play. He has called us to make a difference. How do we do that? We're all called to go. We could go in three ways. We could go in prayer, we could go in person, or we could go through our purse or wallet. We're all called to go. We can, when, uh, this evening he took me to a room there, missions room, he says, Go. We're all called to go and make a difference in our world. And we could do it from here. And when I first came into this country, somebody reminded me of that story tonight. I enjoyed reading bumper stickers. And if I ever have an accident, it's trying to read a bumper sticker. You know, when I see them, I'm always good. And one of my favorites was the one that says, Honk if you love Jesus. And boy, I would drive behind people and I will go, pop, 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 pop. And I did not know they were getting mad at me. <laughs> and, uh, and people would just do all kinds of signs and drive off. And I'm wondering. So there was a particular guy. I saw that. And I went close. I was so happy that day. I said, another believer. I went, pop, 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 pop. He raised his hand. He did a few things. I'm not going to do that here. <laughs> but I thought he was praising the Lord. And uh, so I, I thought, wow, I thought he was calling me to come closer. So I went by and I honk, and he just went up again, just a little bit and sped up. And I said, wow. So I went to work. My boss then was a believer. I said, man, you won't believe what I, I made an exciting believer today. 
He had this stick, I honk, and when I honk, I showed my boss what he was doing. He said, my boss, oh no, Ernest, he is doing something else. He told me, I'm not going to call it a church, you know, but he told me what that meant. And I said, wow. I, 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 did, I still did not understand. I said, what would that be? Why would somebody be doing what he was doing? He, he just said he was pointing something, something I'm not going to call it. And I said, it, it, that still did not make sense to me. I said, what does that mean, pointing, <laughs> you know? And the boss was trying to explain it to me. It, did not, it still doesn't make much sense. But, uh, but I enjoy reading bumper stickers. One of my fa- other favorite is the one that says, think globally, act locally. I think that was taken from the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 8. And you'll be my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and onto the uttermost part of the earth. Think globally. We're all called to think about mission, but it begins at home. It begins locally. And your church is doing an excellent work in that. Uh, Pastor Kenny was telling me what you're doing with the widows. And, you know, that's, it begins here locally. It begins regionally, then nationally, and then internationally. God has called us all to the mission field. And when we go, three things basically happen to us. If you look at the way Jesus taught his disciples, he taught them by sending them out. Not so much because of their maturity, but to move them towards maturity. When you go, three things basically happen. Your maximum growth. When you go, you grow. Whether you like it or not. You grow. If you want to grow as a Christian, as a believer, if you want to be stretched, go out on the short-term missions. Whether locally or internationally or nationally, it stretches you out. And you come back with a deeper gratitude and appreciation for how much God has blessed you. But another thing happens when you go, the maximum good. So your maximum growth, then the maximum good of those you meet. When you go, things happen. If Pastor Kenny had not spoken at that church and Lynn had not been there, they, their compassion, they'll probably not understand. But because they had been there, they can identify. Maximum good happens. When I go back next week, a church will be built. You know, because people came. Maximum good. And when it's maximum growth plus maximum good, what happens? God is maximally glorified. God is the maximum glory of God. So I want to challenge all of us to go in one of these ways, or in all three ways. Pastor Kennedy does all three ways. If I know a couple that prays for me every day when I call, he says, son, we prayed for you this morning. And you know how much encouraged I am knowing somebody prays for me. You can turn the world, you can shake the world from your home through prayers. The disciples who followed him we are accused for turning the world upside down when in actuality they turn an upside down world right side up. God has called us. Our world is going crazy. It's going crazy. You have the council culture, the work culture, and all these other things. Tolerance is as long as you accept others. That's what tolerance is all about. But we're called to make a difference. He has placed us here for significance. Think globally. Act locally. Let's begin to do it. I thank you so much for the difference you'll make when I go home next week and I tell people uh, 
that just sharing with one person has changed. It will change. Our believers will be encouraged. Maximum good will be done. That's money they will not generate in the next 20 years that in two weeks' time we're able to generate here will make a big difference. Can you understand the impact of that story? We're just so thankful. We're thankful for the over 300 foldable chairs that will be put in the container on Tuesday, all because people went, all because somebody obeyed the Lord. If I had not been here, if I had not come here when God led me, all of this would not be happening. We have hundreds of young people who have gone through medical school. We've just taken another medical student right now. His whole tuition a year is $2,000. And by faith last year, his father died, was killed, and I just he called me up and I said, we'll sponsor you through the next three years. Uh, through, you know, so things you may not consider much here can make a big difference in the life of somebody. Uh, can you imagine $500 tuition that the average person cannot pay that? And so we are making a difference, and I thank you for being a big part of what God is doing in my life, in our lives. Together, we're making an impact in our world. Uh, I like that song. It says, thank you for giving to the Lord. You know, uh, one of these days, we'll see. We may not see everything right now, but one of these days, will be congratulated. Uh, one of my other verses uh, is in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. It says, God is not unfaithful, he's not unfair, he's not unjust to overlook our labor of love. I am thankful for what happened to me 45 years ago when I said yes to Jesus. And I'm thankful for the impact that has had in the lives of our country today. Hundreds of young people have had education. Uh, when you come there, you see them. Villages have been changed and all kinds of things. I tell you, it's just amazing to see what God is doing by simple, simple obedience. And thank you, all of that would not be possible. I could have stayed here and had a job. I'd probably be making $80,000 now or maybe a six-figure amount. But the impact we're having, I would not... And that's what I was debating with God. God, let me just stay here and work my way up the ladder. I'll be supporting, but I alone, how much could I give alone? But because I listen to the Lord, God has multiplied that and a whole lot. Just you put the number of people that come to Cameroon every year, you know, just the air tickets and all the rest, the impact is multiplied over and over. So we're uh, very thankful. I just wanted to use this opportunity to, to thank you as a church and as a community. And I want to encourage you to come if you can come to Cameroon. I tell people we like white meat, but, uh, <laughs> but we've not eaten Pastor Kenny yet. He's been there four times. You know, somebody asked me once, what was your first encounter with Christianity? I said, the missionary I ate tasted so good, I decided I was going to be... No, that, that's not kidding. I was just kidding. We're not cannibals. You know, so come... Uh, we encourage you, pray for others and then send others. And you've done a good job. I think last year you sent about, was it five? Five or six people from this church, you know. Uh, thank you so much. I see my, my little girl there. <laughs> Is it, uh, gosh, Ashley De Deaton. Is it right, Ashley? Yes. Ashley didn't like eating uh, fruit, so I made her eat 
have bananas and have fruits. You know, I hope you're eating bananas now. You see, that was one of the experiences. We're tight in, a, in our car, so I will throw bananas at her and said, you must eat your fruits. So, are you eating bananas now? Oh! <laughs> no. Well, come back again. I'll make you eat some more. But we had a lot of fun. I hear you've not presented yet about the trip. Wow, okay, well, COVID is almost ending, so, yeah, so, but thank you for sending them, and thank you for the good work you do around here. I am an example. I'm able to do what I do because of you. When I come here all the time, these guys, are never, sometimes I don't like coming around here because they spoil me. <laughs> In the morning, he's up, breakfast, lunch. Uh, they take good care of me, and sometimes I'm just embarrassed. They're my parents they're in their 70s, and they wake up, uh, do all of that, and I am just one blessed man, and thank you so much, uh, Papa and Mama, for all you've done. You know, Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, church, again. God bless you. Uh, with cheers. Uh, Mark. Okay, Mark. And Pastor Kenny will be bring, driving things to uh, da, uh, to, curve, uh, to Atlanta on Tuesday, and we'll be loading. I bought two used cars there that will put and ship to Cameroon. I bought them at a thousand dollars each. I told a guy who sells cars to me. I said, what he does is he gets them through auction or through bank reports, and so he's able maximum he sells them at two thousand dollars. And so we always have. That's how when you come, we always have cars because renting a car in Cameroon a day is about $200 a day. So everything is so in a country where, uh, so it is just ridiculous. So every time I send something like this, I put one or two cars because in two years' time, that will be gone. The roads are very bad, and so we're constantly replacing them. But what you consider a bad car here is a good car there. So I've just bought uh, two this time one of them has an accident. I think I showed you, but we'll fix it up. It's, uh, there's no hood, nothing, uh, but we'll put it all together when it gets there. Labor is very cheap. Their parts are expensive, so we're buying all the parts here, and when it gets there, with $200 or $300, I'll be able to do the panel beating and the painting, you know. And uh, so, so if you ever have a, a car you want to get rid of, if it's not more than $2,000, let Pastor Kenny know and... If he tells me, we'll buy it and just keep it so that when our cars get bad, we could just send it. And I think you travel comfortably this time. I bought the Honda Pilot we used. We got it here for $2,000. Uh, the van, we got it for $2,000. So, but they're all getting in bad shape now. So what we do is when they start giving me problems, I sell the problem to somebody else who is desperately in need of it. So <laughs> that's the way it is. But... Thank you so much. I look. I always look forward to just coming here and just staying with them. And I'll leave very early tomorrow at 5:30, so I could be in Atlanta on time to pick up a few things uh, for our farm. We're buying, uh, we've gotten quite a lot of things this time. I think uh, uh, Pat Slayton gave us a, is it a, a tiller? We've been praying for that. When I came last year, we tried buying a tiller. We could not find it in any store. We're told. Because of COVID, everybody had become a farmer. And so all the farming equipment we're looking for, uh, uh, is it uh, something that hashes eggs? How do you call that? Incubators. We could not find any. We went from one store to another. Lowe's, 
and all the rest, nothing. So hopefully tomorrow I may be able to find some in Atlanta to put in the container with all of these other things. Be praying for us. Uh, it's been a tough time. I've developed what they call sciatic, sciatical. So if you see me limping like my papa here, it's not uh, uh, genetics. It's, <laughs> it's uh, a little struggle, um, struggling with a few ailments. At 58 and having been on the road for 26 years, it's, uh, taken, it's beginning to catch up with me. So I appreciate your prayers and I thank you. Nothing of eternal significance happened apart from prayer. When we pray, things happen. So keep up the prayers. Thank you. God bless. Mm. I heard. 